Hello, and welcome to PDA, Neurodivergence, and the Perpetually Determined Advocate. I am your Perpetually Determined Advocate, Cassandra. This is a bi-weekly podcast dedicated to raising awareness and acceptance of PDA, or Pathological Demand Avoidance, which is a lesser-known part of the autism spectrum. My hope for this podcast is to provide a place of learning and growth, as well as a platform for PDAers, professionals, parents, family members, and others to speak out on this condition, as well as providing resources for those who want to learn more. If you or someone you know would like to come on and use this platform to tell their story, please contact me at perpetuallydeterminedadvocate at gmail.com. Now, let's launch into this episode's topic. I wanted to talk about school refusal today. This is an issue that many parents, PDAers, deal with. School can be exhausting for a child who is demand avoidant. It is a fairly demanding atmosphere with a great deal of expectations. We know that autistic children, as well as those with the PDA profile of autism, can often mask at school to avoid social ostracism. But this isn't always possible, and the outbursts that inevitably come from a meltdown can result in being made fun of or being treated differently. These can all be a source of an anxiety trigger that can make a child not want to attend school. There are other issues that can make a child refuse school as well, none of which have to do with laziness, which is kind of a pivotal point. Academic pressures or difficulties with understanding or learning material, test anxiety, sensory issues from light, sound, smells, things in the classroom that can overstimulate or overwhelm a child, home-related worries or separation anxieties, bullying or feeling they aren't understood by faculty or staff, disruptions or changes in faculty or staff, the list goes on and on. Any of these things can be difficult sources of anxiety that can be troublesome for a child with PDA to navigate, especially once that anxiety escalates into an anxiety or panic attack. Anyone who has ever experienced this can tell you it's pretty horrifying, right? You feel like there's a vice grip on your chest and you have trouble breathing. You can feel nauseous or dizzy or you get the dark spots in your vision. You start sweating. You start shaking. Now imagine those types of feelings and the feeling of absolute lack of control that you feel in that situation Imagine being a child and feeling all of that. And you can see why it's no wonder that our kiddos with PDA lash out or run because of the fear from feeling so out of control and helpless in your own body as it goes through this. And the thing is, that's what they're refusing. They're not refusing school. They're not refusing to learn. They're not being lazy and just not wanting to tackle an obstacle. They're refusing the absolute fear and helplessness and anxiety that grips them in situations like these. So, if going to school consistently causes this problem, it makes sense as to why PDAers start to refuse school. If 
they feel that their needs are not being met or that they're being judged or treated unfairly for things that are completely out of their control or if their stress and anxiety exceed the support they feel that they're getting at school, then they're going to fight to the bitter end. Who wouldn't? Who put in that same situation and felt like the negatives outweigh the positives wouldn't kind of give some pushback? The problem is that not attending school will, you know, potentially cause your child to fall behind academically which can be detrimental to their education. The other issue, of course, is that school is compulsory. Legally, children are required to attend. And if they don't go, parents run the risk of facing fines and potential prosecution under the law. We get a note every single year at the beginning, whenever the packets come home for the children, there's always a letter in there from the judge saying, I will prosecute to the full extent of the law for truancy, for not showing up to school, right? And so when you have a child that isn't going because of, you know, issues triggered by anxiety, you have them at home because of the problems that they're experiencing. And then you also have a potential for, you know, fines or prosecution from the legal side of matters, I mean, it really just seems like a lose-lose situation, right? So what do you do? First and foremost, you make sure that you've met with the school and you supply them with your child's diagnosis. You give them an actual written copy. They need to have, and it's really helpful in our case, what we did was we emailed a copy of it over because that way you have a copy of the email as well. Not to suggest that the school would in any way say that they don't have it, but you have in your records, should something happen if your child is refusing school and they're not there, um, you have something in your record showing, okay, well, I did inform the school ahead of time of my child's diagnosis, of the fact that this is a, you know, a condition that has a whole lot of anxiety with it. You just, you have that for your records. It's more of a, you know, having that and not needing it versus needing it and not having it, right? It's one of those situations. Also, when you send the diagnosis, try to provide the school with some information on PDA. Parents of PDAers know all too well that anytime you tell people, my child has pathological demand avoidance, you usually get like the crickets and the blinking eyes And people don't know what you're talking about, right? That's literally the reason why this podcast exists. So try to provide them with some information to help them understand a little bit better. Even if it's just like the little brochure leaflet thing that you can get from the PDA Society's website um, or, you know, some information from PDA North America even. And so that will give them sort of a baseline and also give them some, you know, links and stuff in those brochures so that they can go and learn more about it. But just give them some sort of basic information about PDA ahead of time so that they can understand where your child is coming from, right? Talking about these issues ahead of time is just, it's a really good deal so that you have that baseline there before anything happens and in case something happens. Also, see if your doctor 
can provide a letter explaining the information. I mean, obviously, when you get the diagnosis from a psychologist, they send you the whole um, the whole diagnosis that has you know the tests that were run and the the findings and all of that. But see if they can provide some sort of letter just really stating that your child has this sort of high anxiety condition. And even if it's just to let them know or to, to give them advice on potential things that they could do, just something from the doctor as well. Um, that way the school will have something on file for their records as well too, you know, in the case of changing um, you know, faculty or staff and things like that. Um, speaking of having things on file, document any issues that seem to be causing stress and anxiety. Um, that way you can kind of gauge what's going on. You can see if there's a pattern of behavior that is, you know, certain, it's certain things or certain subjects um, or, you know, certain times of day, certain rooms that are causing this anxiety and stress in your child. If they come home and they tell you that they've had a really rough day, that they got in trouble, um, or if they have some sort of discipline write-up or something written on a behavior chart, try to talk to them about it. Maybe not right away, because um, this one can be difficult. Believe me, I know I've been there. Um, you might not be able to talk to them about it right away, but odds are they're going to let you know when they get in the car that they've had a rough day or whenever you check their binder or their folder you'll see the write-up. Um, sometimes when you first ask them about it, right, parents, what happens? The child immediately goes into panic mode. I know, I'm sorry, I'm so bad. What? I, it, it was terrible. I got in trouble. Um, and they can sometimes sort of panic and get defensive. Um, so you might not be able to get out of them exactly what happened at that point. You may have to let them sort of process and calm down. And when they're in that calm space, then maybe try to understand, well, what was the situation, right? Was it something due to a learning difficulty, a focus issue? Was it a sensory issue, right? What was it that caused the stress or anxiety? And the important thing is that we, we listen to the child when they say that they're struggling because if your child feels that they are being heard, that they are being seen, that they are being you know, listened to and looked out for, that helps with that level of trust, right? And we talked about that um, on a previous episode. And that trust is very important. Then once you know what's going on with your child, what's sort of causing this um, overload of stress and anxiety, contact the school or the teacher. Even if it's just contacting the teacher during like conference periods, and see if there's a way to work around whatever obstacle this is, right? A way to work around it that will benefit everyone, right? I'm not saying try to find something and it will completely upend the uh, the entire classroom, right? We are looking for reasonable accommodations here. That's the kind of thing we're wanting for our children. Um, collaboration with the school is absolutely vital to creating that environment that is conducive to PDA'ers learning. Um, you have to have some sort of collaboration, some sort of compromise, um, and having a school that's willing to work with you on this is, is very important. Um, but keeping records um, with dates, um, 
even if it's, I mean, if it's something you write down in a notebook, if it's something you keep in a file, um, a, you know, a saved document on your computer, however you want to do it, just make sure that you have dated evidence um, that, again, could be used in your, you know, if, if it comes down to it and you have a lot of school refusal and, you know, the school is moving or the judge is moving towards prosecution, you'll have that information there that you can use in your defense that, okay, well, these, this was the pattern of behavior. This is what I attempted to do. This is how I tried to get my child to school. It's not that they're lazy. It's not that I'm lazy or inefficient as a parent. I'm not just trying to keep them home. You know, it's not just, oh, they say they don't want to go, so I don't fight them on it. This is what's happening. This is the pattern. Here is all of the evidence, right? That can be very important. Many people lack a knowledge on PDA and will sometimes tell you to just force your child to go to school. They will tell you that you're making it worse by giving in or that simply forcing them to go will make them confront their issues and move forward. But there's a problem there, right? When you force a PDA or to do something, assuming that you can, um, this can cause serious harm in a lot of areas, right? Remember, again, I just mentioned that whole idea of trust, but also there's the, you know, that element of safety as well. And when PDAers and their carers, that level of trust and safety is very important. Severing that trust with a PDA child is tantamount to abandoning them in their eyes. So if the person that they trust, if their safe person forces them to go to school with no regard for that negativity, if they force them into a situation that they don't feel safe in and they've told them they don't feel safe in, consider how that will, re- will play out in the child, right? And it's also really potentially negatively and damaging, right, to the child. And that child can become lost. Their behavior in school will most likely not improve. Uh, it'll deteriorate. And this can lead to worsening mental health, higher instances of self-harm or suicidal ideation, talk of suicide or, um, you know, any of these things. And worse, right? And please, before you dismiss the thought that a child could understand, consider, or talk about suicide, let me remind you that mine has not only verbalized that he should kill himself, but he's expressed a few different ways he would go about it. Uh, we had a rather uncomfortable conversation with the school counselor uh, this past Friday. My, in January of this year, Uh, My son moved schools. After we got his IEP in place, he changed schools. And the previous times that he has mentioned something about suicide, once was at home, um, once was at the school he was at previously. It's in the same district, but they didn't have the sort of small group um, special ed facilities at that school that they had at one of the others. So they transferred him in January. And he hadn't really, we hadn't really seen any of that happening 
after he went to the smaller group and we thought that maybe things were improving. But the beginning of the school year is always difficult, right? Transitions aren't easy when you're dealing with autism. And this year was no different. They started school last week. Friday, we get a a phone call letting us know that he's in the the counselor's office. Someone's going to have to go in there and pick him up because, you know, he was having trouble in class. They wanted to bring him to the counselor to see if that would help. On the way to the counselor's office, he basically said that he should just kill himself. And that was one that they hadn't heard at that school. They hadn't heard any of that from him. Gets to the counselor's office. The teacher explains to the counselor what happened. And the counselor, of course, thinking like most people do, that a child at the age of eight doesn't know what they're talking about when they say that, asks him, well, do you know what that really means? And my son just kind of says, well, yeah. And she says, yeah, but how would you even do something like that? How would a person even do something like that to kill themselves? And he basically explained the process by which he would use, which was different from the last time. And every time this happens, it, sh- yeah, I mean, it, it rattles me to my very core. This is a fear that parents of PDA children live with a lot. Um, And it's not something that I can ever fully express how horrifying and how, how deeply it resonates. And so don't ever dismiss a child that says something about suicide by thinking this is a child they don't know what they're talking about because they, some of them know more than what you think and the idea you know it's I mean it's honestly terrifying how advanced the thinking of PDA children is when it comes to attacking themselves whether that and not just in suicide also in self-harm because of their lack of control and um, ways that they may you know people may look at them differently or treat them differently as a result of it so Just know if you force a child to go, if you try to take like the flooding approach where you just really immerse them in their fear until they exhaust themselves back to a calm space and they're still in that sort of environment that they fear, that's not something that should ever be attempted um, by a lay person. That's something that should only be done by a professional in, in very select circumstances, only if the professional deems it. Um, necessary and it very often doesn't work right Um, it's not something especially when you're dealing with a child that's demand avoidant so if you force them to go and they have even worse times coping this can send them down a very dark path and thinking poorly of themselves and and have some pretty disastrous consequences so I would not encourage just forcing them to go right and another issue that can cause problems is people saying, well, I don't agree with this diagnosis or with what you're telling me is wrong with your child. Well, not wrong with, but what you're telling me is affecting your child um, and this medical diagnosis that they have because, you know, these people will say, well, your child seems fine when they're in school. They're fine when they're here. We don't notice these things. And the idea that they're, your child seems fine, quote unquote, when they're in school, um, is 
probably them blending or masking, right? Parents of PDAers and autistic children can tell you masking and blending are real things. And that sometimes that source of seeming fine is one of those two things. So what are blending and masking? Um, blending is just when your child tries to blend in, right? They're copying the behaviors of other children to try to appear the same as their peers, to try to avoid that ostracism, um, whether that's being picked on, made fun of, bullied, um, or just kind of treated different by faculty or staff, um, you know, in some situations. And so this masking, though, is a little bit different. This is putting on a mask, essentially, to protect yourself from the outside world. So when you're feeling overwhelmed, stressed, or anxious, you put on this mask um, as a form of protection to not show what you're actually feeling. Um, and so, like, but if a child has PDA, why would they mask instead of just being demand avoidant? How is it that they have enough control to mask, and but they don't have the control to um, comply with the, the, the demand, right? Remember that, like, PDA is ruled by anxiety. And while a child can want to avoid a demand due to anxiety, they can also want to avoid um, fear and anxiety of what happens if they refuse to do something. Um, I say want, that's probably the wrong word. A child can, you know, they're going to avoid this due to anxiety because they go into survival mode, right? They're in fight, flight, freeze, fawn, whichever one it is. And the higher the possible anxiety, the higher the precedence. So they're going to see the more dangerous thing, and that's what they're going to want to protect themselves from. So if a child feels like masking protects them from the more frightening thought of retribution or ridicule, that's likely the route they're going to take. So what are some of the things that you can ask the school to do or even, um, you know, to maybe end or prevent school refusal? One of the things that we asked for, and it was a big ask, I'll admit that, was like a quiet or a calm down space, somewhere like a, a room that was cool, maybe a little bit darker, um, you know, the lights were dimmed a little bit, something, a place that had soft things in it where my son could go when he was feeling overwhelmed to calm down. Definitely a place that did not have anything in it he could use to harm himself because he has always been um, a self-harmer. And this, you know, this can be a really big ask because not all schools have the ability to have such a place. And that's understandable. But the other thing is you can have like a designated safe person, someone that that child can be taken to in the event that they begin to escalate, right? Um, this can be a counselor, an aide, a principal, whoever. The idea, though, is just to make sure your child knows that there is someone there to help them through in times of high fear, high anxiety, someone who is going to provide compassion, care, and absolutely no judgment whatsoever. Um, you could also have a card that your child could keep on them, maybe on a lanyard or something, uh, to show to the teacher when they need to excuse themselves or go to the safe person. Um, that might be a little bit better for older children who can identify those feelings a little bit better when they feel that anxiety increasing. Um, then they can just sort of show the card to the teacher and be able to slip out silently so they don't have to stop the teacher and tell them they're feeling overwhelmed or they're feeling anxious and chance someone overhearing that. It's just a way to, to give that sort of anonymity 
you know, I'm having this moment. I need, you know, I need to go. Here is my way of signaling that, right? Also, if needed, remember that your IEP can be altered for your child. So if you feel that a change needs to be made, contact your special education director or schedule a meeting with your team and get that IEP changed. As parents of PDA children, we have to advocate for them. We have to be their voice so that their needs can be met at school and so they can keep going or in the event that something happens where they start to refuse so that we can maybe get them back um, to that education. Before I do my normal closing, I do want to put a message out there to my listeners. As you just heard, I had a rough week. I appreciate you all for coming on this journey with me. Um, As the parent of a PDA kiddo myself, I know that it isn't always an easy road. Feeling the weight of those struggles, though, does not make you a bad person or a bad parent. It simply makes you human. You can love and support and want the best for your child as they are, who they are, without wanting them to change, but also admit that it can be hard sometimes. So if any of you ever need an ear or a person who can relate, please contact me. Send me an email. Part of my mission with this podcast is creating community. So let's have a community. As always, you can email me with any questions, comments, constructive criticism, or concerns at perpetuallydeterminedadvocate at gmail.com. You can also find the podcast on social media. Just search PDA Neurodivergence and the Perpetually Determined Advocate on Facebook or Instagram. And until next time, remember, in a world where you can be anything, be kind.